2: All right, welcome to the nose. It's the end of the week. It's been an exciting uh, week for us uh, here on the Colin—I mean, just they all are—but here on the Colin McEnroe Show. It was an exciting week. Um, I won't go into why. Uh, So here on the show today, well, we all went out to the movies to see the movie *I, Tanya*. It, It, of course, is a recounting. Uh, Of the uh, uh, this thing that kind of gripped the nation, I I, I guess I I would call it a scandal. Um, That, of course, was although it really isn't a movie about the kneecapping of Nancy Kerrigan. It's about something else, and we'll figure out what that something else is in our uh, second segment today. But before we do that, in the first segment, um, is there a Bruno Mars backlash, and if so, does it have something to do? with uh, accusations of cultural appropriation uh, by Bruno Mars of song elements and tropes that aren't really uh, part of his own ethnicity, although God knows his ethnicity should be just a Free pass to get in just about anywhere, but and then uh, Richard Roper is uh, perhaps the first actual casualty uh, in a story that broke in the New York Times last weekend, uh, page one story uh, about the incredible industry of fake Twitter followers. Richard Roper, one of the people who appears to have purchased uh, bot-driven fake Twitter followers, he's of course a Chicago Tribune movie critic. Uh, He has been suspended from his job for that. We'll talk about whether that makes sense or not. But we're going to start. With Bruno Mars, Uh, and so, first of all, we should say that Bruno Mars won a lot of Grammys uh, this past weekend. A lot, a lot, a lot of Grammys: Album of the Year, Record of the Year, Song of the Year, Best R and B Performance, Best R and B Song, Best R and B Album. Bruno Mars is there, and all of that. Let's hear a little bit of Bruno and Cardi B doing finesse. So I'm a... Uh sitting here chair dancing. And Carolyn Payne, one of our panelists, is, of course, making for the door, which is what she does when Bruno Mars starts to play. Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, dancer. She's a founder, uh, a director and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. She's recovering from a broken ankle, uh, but she's more mobile now. She could actually get out of here just to escape Bruno <laughs> Mars, but she chooses not to. Ran Richards Cooper, a uh, contributing editor at Wheel, writes the In Our Midst column for Hartford Magazine. Parker, who, making her debut uh, on The Nose, although not on our show, uh, she's been on before. A graphic designer who performs with a bunch of local bands. She's making her nose debut. I just said that. Uh, her brand new solo album is Late Reply. It's available at Uh So, um, so look, Parker, let's start out. I mean, well, one, of the, one way that we could sort of argue that there's something of a Bruno Mars Backlash is just a lot of our articles circulating on the web, including sometimes to us in our emails. Is Bruno Mars cul- guilty of cultural appropriation, asks one. Bruno Mars must be stopped, 24K magic album review. Bruno Mars and the appropriation of black music. Uh, and a fourth article, is Bruno Mars black, 450,000 Google questions about his ethnicity, race, <laughs> nationality, and parents' <laughs> background. So you can see I mean. First of all, Well, you've got one theory about what's happening here.
0: My theory is the question is actually, is Bruno Mars too popular? Mm -hmm. Uh, As we were saying before, I think in general people kind of, people like to root for an underdog, especially musicians, the undiscovered band. But once they reach a certain popularity threshold, you know, it, it turns into, well, you know, they hack for this right. or whatever reason. Now we must destroy this person. Yes. We have Unless built there's this
3: Beyonce, up. where I feel like she actually, that hype like rises her up even higher.
0: I suppose. I mean, I, I guess it would depend on who you're asking. I know there's there's definitely a lot of people out there who are very anti-pop music. Anything that's highly commercial, just take much offense to it. I mean, that's my problem with Bruno Mars. I feel like
3: a lot of his songs are just, I mean, not like you want your pop music to be really deep because I think that's kind of the whole point of pop music, is to just kick back and listen to something fun. I just find some of his songs so annoying, except I do happen to like that <laughs> finesse song that we just played, because it has this, like, 90s, you know, New Kids on the Block, Paula Abdul sound to it that really, I that I'm, I'm into. Mm.
2: So, but Rand, one of the specific allegations uh, being made, if, if it could be called an allegation against Bruno Mars, is that, He's a lot of things, but he's not black. He was uh, born in Hawaii to a Puerto Rican and Jewish father and a Filipina and Spanish mother. Um, uh, And uh, uh, I guess his real name is Peter Jean Hernandez. I hadn't really (laughs) really known that. I like calling him Bruno Mars. But I mean, this is like a really old question. is like how much, how many tropes can you borrow from various kinds of quote unquote roots music that aren't part of your roots?
1: So I don't I don't have that much to say about Bruno in particular. The few times I've I've heard him, uh, I, I've liked him. I liked his Super Bowl thing. Was that last year or the year before? Mm, year before. Um, but but the the term cultural appropriation has been in the conversation a lot in in recent years, and it's a, a pretty interesting topic. The idea behind it is that there are uh, certain cultural traditions um, that are in a, in, a, in effect proprietary. Uh, and and that you qualify to partake in them, by virtue of actually belonging to the tradition out of which they grew, the ethnic tradition. There, there, there are be, before we do away with the idea that, that that there might be something legitimate in this, because I'm ultimately really very opposed to the idea. Maybe it's it's worth trying to understand, you know, where it comes from, um, and part of it has to do with the sense that other, uh, cultural traditions that are other are often travestied uh, and, and insulted. So a lot of this, the talk of cultural appropriation on campus had to do with, for instance, you know, like people throwing taco and tequila parties, you know, mm-hmm. where frat boys wear sombreros. And this is perceived to be insulting to uh, people of Mexican culture. So so one source for the idea of cultural appropriation is the idea of cultural travesty and insult. The other is that of sort of professional exclusion and the galling uh, nature of seeing someone, you know, like if you go back to the history of Motown and uh, seeing someone, seeing for white artists take your music that you're like barely getting by with a career, singing it, and then they make millions of dollars. So, so yeah. So pat, pat Boone made a lot of money, right.
2: Singing Little Richard songs, right? The when pat Booneification yeah. of black music. I mean, Little Richard was not making a lot. So of money you understand
1: where this idea comes from, but in in terms of how it actually applies to artists and to art, it's its really problematic, you know, because all art involves constantly this constant churn and mixing of traditions, whether you're talking about literary art or music. If you restrict artists from crossing boundaries, taking things and merging them into f- fantastic and cool new hybrids, hybrids, certainly true narratively, certainly true musically, then the whole thing really grinds, grinds to a halt.
3: Well, is it that people didn't know what, because I I actually didn't know that he wasn't black until I had looked that up. So I'm wondering if that, if people have this sense of feeling because he surrounds himself, his whole band are are black. Like, I wonder if there is, if it's the sense where people are like, oh, hey, wait a second. That's not what you are. Is it that, they they felt like he misrepresented that
1: he's actually pretending and committing a fraud in not a way. that he's
3: like pretending but it's just that you wouldn't necessarily know I mean it, it doesn't matter to me what his ethnicity is I think some of his songs are good and some are just earworms but well
2: let's uh, let's first of all circle back to the actual musician in our midst but before we do that uh, I want to play a little clip this is as Jonathan points out the third time on the show that I've asked for uh, a clip from part of this conversation. It was on uh, a podcast that I really like a lot, the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Uh, they do this thing called the Summer Strut uh, sh- episode where they sort of look at the songs that they really want to hear a lot while they're walking around during the summer. And uh, Ed Sheeran came up. And it turned out that m- most of the people on this show didn't really quite understand who Ed Sheeran was. They're not rock critics or anything like that. They knew that there was such a person as Ed Sheeran, and they were kind of vaguely aware of him. They were asking a lot of questions. But the rock critic who was on the show, Chris Malanfi, kind of went after Ed Sheeran in a very specific kind of way.
3: Ed Sheeran will do whatever he has to do to have a hit. I don't want to make him sound utterly craven, but, like, has he done hip-hop? Yes. Has he done folk? Yes. Has he done EDM? Yes. You know, he's even got a hit on his current album called Galway Girl, which is kind of like a post-Cores Irish step-dancing kind of song. Like, he will do that. Whatever it takes to get a hit, Homeboy will do that.
2: All right. First of all, if you're attacking somebody for cultural appropriation and you're a white rock critic and you use Homeboy as a pronoun, uh, you have committed the very sin, probably, that you are attacking. But, um, But, Parker, like, musicians are... They're they're syncretists. They they musicians just listen to stuff that they like and work it into the stuff that they do. I mean, I don't know. Is that a is it unfair to ha- to to attack somebody for their eclecticism?
0: Well, I certainly don't think so. And actually, I don't think it really matters whether you're a musician or you're just a, a lover of the arts or if you are really into accounting, but just have a huge eclectic music taste. It's, you know, people like what they like. And it's interesting what you said before, Rand, about the cultural appropriation and you really limit the artistic process when you try to keep people within their bounds. Because uh, that's, that's the evolution of arts, of culture. I mean, that's kind of why I feel like it's just picking a reason to hate. You know, maybe one of the reasons people have an opposition to Bruno Mars for whatever they think he should be is, oh, well, you know, he... He seems like he should fit into this bucket, but he doesn't. Well, what the heck? Um, But you could also go another route and say, well, he is only there because he's attractive. Which is another argument that gets made a lot. In <laughs> he's there because
3: he's a, he was an Elvis impersonator. He was
0: like the world's youngest Elvis impersonator, right? right.
2: That's that's how he took his first <laughs> that's step. That's how he got, yeah. There. But there, he may be there for a variety of other reasons, right? But
3: I mean, that he he got that was like his big break. I think he was even in a movie playing a little Elvis impersonator right. when he was like a little kid.
2: But Parker, do that say? Do people say that about Bruno Mars? He's only there because he's no, he's, not he's specifically. Oh, okay. I
0: kind of just think about that because there's actually i was just having a conversation with another musician the other day about this saying that oh well so and so wouldn't be here if he or she wasn't attractive Mm -hmm. which is kind of true if you i don't know if you if you don't look like you're going to stand out that's part of the marketing and success of i think the performing arts are a visual medium
3: at the end of the day and i think that that
2: well, particularly in the advent of videos. I mean, Uptown Funk is a lot of different things, but it's a a video, too, that people like, and it has, like, a certain aesthetic going on in it, too. You know, so, Rand, just to go back to one other point, let's set aside cultural appropriation, too. I think there's sort of another thing that annoys people, and and that is songs that really do become so incredibly popular that everybody knows them and can sing them. Uh, And and so, at that point, they're wrenched out. All the people who have gone to a lot of trouble trying to be cool, you know, and have spent a lot of time You know, with D'Angelo's Black Messiah album or something like that. And then, like, along comes up Down Funk, and every idiot, 63 year old white guy like me, knows all the words and can dance to it. There's something (laughs) grating about that, too, even though we think pop music really should be for everybody.
1: Well, I think two things that are grating about it is one, some of these melodies. They do insinuate themselves into your mind in a way that proves tormenting over time, mm-hmm. and uh, is 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 Ed Sheeran the the I'm in Love with the Shape of You guy? Yes, that is who so, Ed Sheeran is. So wow. I, I mean, you know, the number of times comes my daughter who's twelve yeah. oh. uh, listens to that, So you know, and right. I have I have lit into this song for all of its uh, retro r- retrograde sentiments, and you know, but there I am after after delivering this lecture to her about how bad how wrong these lyrics are, and then you know I'm around the the house going, I love with your body, and she'll (laughs) say, Dad, what are you humming? Um, So so these songs defeat you and torment you at that level, but in terms of the the success and Homeboy trying anything to have it, obviously anyone who has anything invested in in, in being a sort of cutting-edge artist faces a terrible dilemma once success crashes over him, you know, him or her, and and, and, and artists have been put uh, in that in that amusing situation uh, again and again And again, and each has to find her or his way to deal with popularity and success. Um, well, I don't have to, but I mean, those, <laughs> those, those who uh, have that wave crescendo over them do. See, I, I should be honest about this and say that
2: I live in two different worlds. In this world that I'm here, I'm in here in the studio, I sort of think, you know, that, that Bruno Mars and Ed Sheeran are the kinds of pop artists that they're good pop artists and they make good pop that people like. And, you know, I mean, it's not really complicated or thoughtful pop or it's not. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you really want to immerse yourself... Immerse yourself in something else, um, but, uh, but for what pop music is, which is, you know, sort of party music and car music and stuff like that, I mean, I think they're actually very good at it. Okay, That's this world and that's my official position on this show. Now, I happen to live with somebody who is not 12 years old, who is not anything close to 12 years old, who is part of my generation, um, who would, if allowed, have Ed Sheeran and Bruno Mars and a lot of other stuff on in the car for long drives all the time. And I take a completely different position there. <laughs> My position might be summed up as, I'm going to jump out of this car while it's moving if this doesn't stop pretty soon." So
3: And yet it comes on. I have seen Colin, you know, break it down <laughs> to up-down funk at a party, and so it comes on there and you lose all control. But in the car, like right. that's too much.
2: Um, she, in all fairness, <laughs> Carolyn saw that over her shoulder as she was running away from the party. <laughs> um, where Upton Funk was playing. All right, well, we should move on here anyway. I think you can enjoy Bruno Mars without feeling as though you're doing anything wrong. Um, but that's just me. Um, so Richard Roper is a film critic. As I said before, there was a massive uh, New York Times page one lead the paper story. They had un- uncovered this um, uh, this enterprise, this industry that is basically involved in um, creating fake Twitter accounts that often seem to mirror actual Twitter accounts. Uh, so there's the, the real Parker Who on Twitter, but then there's another Parker who, who just like says all kinds of things and follows all kinds of people. And that particular Parker Who, the fake Parker who is can be bought and sold. Uh, and that's what people do. They a- actually sell. Uh, there's one company in particular that sells uh, by the thousands and maybe by, maybe by the millions the fake Twitter accounts that are kind of bot-operated, uh, and people who want to have a lot of Twitter followers for a variety of different reasons buy these. Uh, and it came out that John Licuizamo, uh had done such a thing, a bunch of other celebrities had done it. Uh, but also Richard Roper, who's a critic for a newspaper, uh, had done it, and he has been suspended uh, for that. So um, I have my own thoughts about this, but, Rand, why don't you start us off here?
1: So I would start from this point. Um Roper is, is a man of a certain age, right, Colin? Uh, mm-hmm. He's not a young guy. Uh, and it's, it's ironic in an emblematic way for where we are now that a movie critic, someone who, who, whose function in this sort of entertainment machine that we, that we have, used to be to serve as the mechanism whereby a movie would gain popularity. That person now has to go out and find, in effect, movie critic critics. Um, in order to credential himself, I mean nothing nothing could speak more fully to the sort of replacement of the gatekeeping mechanism that, that critics used to play than than this particular story. So I find it I, ironic in in that way. I mean he is still the movie critic, but but he 's nobody if he doesn 't have these people out here supporting him
3: that 's exactly it. I mean the word credential, so you know I, I'm, I'm an actor and a comedian. And when you are meeting with like your agent or if you're part of a project, they're looking to see how many followers you have. That is a huge. And I'm sure it's the same in, in music when you're meeting with managers there. And the but they also want to make sure that they are real followers and. Um, you know, they'll go through. And if you have, like on Instagram, if you have like 10,000 followers, but you're only getting like 50 likes a picture, that math doesn't add up. And they can tell that you bought those followers and they're not genuine. So, and it goes so far as a lot of times they tell you, you want to have, they want to see engagement, meaning that you're, it's true people who are commenting and everything like that. So this, when I saw this headline, I, I laughed about it because last spring when I was out in LA working on a project, and this was something that was – they. it was getting a lot of talk out there because a lot of actors are buying followers to pad up their social media and to get their foot in the door with agents and into production. Because the more followers you have, sometimes the more likely they are to hire you for that project, believe it or not.
2: Uh, I, I mean it may be a faulty assumption that Parker has to play this game She's, you you do like art rock. You probably have to prove that you don't have any Twitter followers. Oh or yeah, true. I don't <laughs> know if I would.
0: say. <laughs> don't want to be the. No, we don't there. do art rock. But I, I do work in marketing, and the whole actually the engagement term makes me laugh a little bit because on one hand I, I totally understand why a film critic now has to buy his own critics to build up his credentials because it, it's all a numbers game as you're saying, and now that any person can have their own Twitter handle or whatever it is, they've essentially become their own brand. And if you have your own brand, you have to take care of your brand, like you have to water your garden. (laughs) And and then it starts to – it becomes a natural inclination to, to, you know, add supplements. It's kind of – Buy artificial fertilizer. for Uh, Yes, exactly. (laughs) But,
1: you know, the the reason I asked if he's a man of a certain age is is that – you know I feel one of the great liberations of of midlife generally is that you gradually are able to free yourself from the vice-like grip of uh, popularity, uh, of caring as much about what other people think of you. Much of social media seems like, uh, 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 a structural conspiracy to keep us involved in sort of adolescent and, and <laughs> young adult, the, the, the throes of, of, of popularity-related mm-hmm. dilemmas and stratagems that it used to be by the time you were Richard Roper's age, you know, you didn't care. You had the great blessing of not caring about that. Not only now do you have to care about, like, who likes you, it's not only a status thing, it's a commercial currency. Mm-hmm. And in that way, this seems like a, like a perfect storm of, <laughs> of badness in certain ways. But it is what it is. And once that reality is there, it was inevitable that a market would be there for it, and then that companies like the one in that, in that article would develop in order to serve the market. And, and it, it's know, incredibly cheap it to buy followers.
3: Right. Yeah. It's like
1: a penny, yeah. a, a penny a pop, right? Yeah. yeah. I,
3: I, I mean, I think you can buy like a thousand followers for like five bucks or something like that. It, it, it's just I, so I can understand how the temptation is there. Like, you're like, oh, this will oh. help.
2: Well, speaking of pennies, let me offer my two cents uh, <laughs> uh, about this Um for First of all, I I actually dispute what you're saying, Rand. I actually think that um, people who are in the public eye, people who are... Are doing jobs that involve public visibility and having some kind of public audience. They all care about that. Uh, if you know anybody who thinks that you know that that Anthony Lane doesn't care if he has more readers than you know some other film critic. Nah, they all care. Um, nobody ever stops caring about that. They may be able to make it a more dignified process, but they still care. Now, I, I do think that there's two wrongs that are committed here that probably are worth addressing. One of them is. If you work in journalism, which film critics are sort of at least nominally part of, you don't want to be saying things that aren't true. That's one of the things we don't do, right? Ideally, we don't mislead people about things. So if he's in fact intentionally misleading people about a pretty trivial question, how many Twitter followers he has, he's still – he's kind of departed from maybe one of the two or three – absolutely bedrock codes of journalism. It's the kind of thing that you don't have to be told on your first day of work. So there's a little bit of a problem there. I think there's also kind of a harm. Uh, And the harm is not to him or not to us by being misled by him, but by, I mean, as the Times piece uh, made clear, if you, Carolyn Payne, don't particularly like Richard Roper uh, and wouldn't follow him, but there's some go- kind of bot driven Carolyn Payne copy account that's fo- that's following Richard Roper and can that can be obviously noticed and documented, that's an injury to you. An injury is committed being committed to you and and so you have to at least sort of acknowledge those two things from an ethical standpoint. Having said all that, I also feel like, you know, Tronk or whoever he works for, it's probably, I think it is Tronk, they probably don't have any policy about this because they never thought about it because companies are too big and stupid to understand everything that's kind of happening out there. And I don't think you should suspend somebody for violating a
1: policy you don't have. Oh, right. No, I'm done. Well, they have to catch up mm-hmm. with the policy. The Slate yeah, article is right. very smart in saying institutions are going to need to draw a clear line between what is merely distasteful, tacky self-promotion and what is a serious breach of journalistic ethics. And, you know, th- this stuff changes rapidly enough that the institutions, not to mention laws, I mean, is some of this stuff going to be illegal? Is it, is it actually commercial fraud? <laughs> <You> know, <I laughs> Who knows think, what box to put this in? I didn't in?
3: think of it from the ethical standpoint because mm-hmm. I I saw it from the, my perspective professional standpoint of where I know a lot of, you know, up and coming actors and comedians who, who do do that because you like, you you know, pad it a little and then people see like, oh, a lot of people are following this person. It helps you gain followers. And I see where that temptation lies. But I didn't think of it from if you do have a job where ethically you are responsible for, you know, being a truth teller and, and delivering news like that, that's that is different than, you know, a, an actor who is trying to cultivate Fans, like their whole point Mm -hmm. with their social media is to grab attention. So where numbers are an attention grabber in his position.
2: Right. And, we, and, we expect a certain amount of falsification from right. actors. I do want to say that somebody <laughs> Great, <thanks>. uh, <laughs> that somebody somebody's Twitter handle is Grenade O'Connor uh, is tweeting, I have to pay five bucks a month for John Dankosky to follow me. Well worth it. See, I think that's a different thing. Yeah, I would follow you probably for five dollars too, but that's like a completely different kind of transaction. Uh, <laughs> that's not getting big business involved. We should take a quick break, I think, and so we can jump over to I, Tanya. We want to have a lot of time to talk about that. Very interesting movie. I'm not really even Sure, how everybody here feels about it yet. Tweet
0: me. I want you to tweet me. Huh? Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. Yeah. I want you to tweet me. I want-
2: All right. So uh, now we're uh, moving uh, over to a new release, a movie called I, Tanya*. Margot Robbie is uh, probably somewhere in the hunt for Best Actress where she's nominated. Alison Janney, uh, who plays her mother, LaVonna Golden, uh, is something close to a front runner for the Oscar for uh, Best Supporting Actress. Uh, probably uh, bumping heads a little bit with Laurie Metcalf from Lady Bird. We can talk about that if we have time. Let's begin by hearing uh, those two actresses in particular. You're going to hear uh, Margot Robbie as Tanya Harding, Allison Janney as her mother, in one of their typical loving exchanges.
0: Did you? I mean, when I was a kid, did you ever love me or anything?
3: You think Sonia Henney's mother loved her? Poor you. I didn't stay home making apple brown Bettys. No, I made you a champion. Knowing you'd hate me for it. That's the sacrifice a mother makes. I wish I'd had a mother like me instead of nice. Nice getcha. I didn't like my mother either. So what? I gave you a gift. You cursed me.
2: monster spilled milk baby all right so uh, there you have it Uh, one of their typical exchanges Um, uh, producer jonathan mcnichol is pointing out let's be clear this is supposedly a comedy i'm not even sure i agree that oh first of all let's say something that that history is being made here this is the first time that carolyn payne has ever been on this show to talk about a movie which we did not force her to go see she had actually been to see the movie and 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 would have gone to see the movie no matter what i Uh, saw this
3: movie weeks ago on my own volition i was still on crutches i left my house in the dead of winter on crutches i hobbled like clubbed nancy kerrigan to this movie on my own (laughs) Well, I mean, not on my. So, I, why would that friends.
2: be? Why, why, why this movie?
3: Um, I was intrigued by it. Uh, I I remember the Nancy Kerrigan Tanya Harding scandal. I'm, I'm from Massachusetts, and so Nancy Kerrigan was, you know, the the little prized olympia <laughs> Olympic treasure. And I remember that whole thing. And I just thought the movie struck me as looking really interesting. And uh, I I liked. I had read how the style of it, where it's sort of this like documentary but sort of like mockumentary i'm a big fan of those christopher guest movies which Mm -hmm. this this reminded me of i found it to be funny um i was laughing in the theater uh at first no one else was (laughs) but i right from the first scene and i i i liked this movie a lot um and i am excited that this is the first time this is a in a long time (laughs) that i can say that i liked a movie i Mm -hmm. had to see for the show
0: (laughs) i was excited to see it too Yeah. Yeah.
2: Say why, and 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 what 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 is the movie to you? Like, what do you think this movie is about?
0: I do think that it could it would be categorized as comedy, not slapstick. You know, dark comedy. Mm -hmm. That's like my favorite kind of comedy, right? Um, I actually had met someone who was a former figure skater, and we were talking about figure skating and the competition and all that, and it just made me interested. I was pretty young when the scandal was going down, so it really kind of went over my head. And in a way, I'm glad because when I was watching the movie, I, I kind of Wasn't trying to associate any sort of factual uh, analogy. I was just kind of watching it almost as a a narrative storytelling, just as a regular movie.
1: All right. And Rand, how about you? So I thought that was a great uh, uh, clip to play from the movie because if if you didn't know anything about this movie and you only heard that clip— it would be unimaginable to you that this could be a comedy. Mm-hmm. There, there's not a single note in, in. In fact, that that what what we just heard is really a horrifying and <laughs> and an, uh, portrayal of, uh, of, of of a, a degraded and terrible mother daughter relationship. Although
2: I would quickly say that I, I remember being in the theater and laughing when she says, "Do you think Sonia Henny's mother loved her?" Yeah, I did laugh at that. Anyway, continue.
1: Well, <laughs> so to me, what this is about? Um, I, I I think each of us could could. Maybe give a one-sentence summary of what this is about. One of the things this is about is what is it like to be reduced to sort of a one or two-line joke in the cultural conversation, and 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 twenty years later, what is it? See, what is it like to have been you know that person all along? It's it's also about uh, the the difficulty of lives that come from the the sort of bottom edge of the lower middle class. It's about the difficulty of a working-class life. It's about about abuse of different kinds, abuse from your mother, uh, um, a, a marital abuse, um, she's, she's, she's beaten up by, by various people. Um, but, but it's also funny, I mean, the, the real Jonathan McNichol put the question to us in one of the emails, the whole time I was asking myself, is this movie humanizing all these people or is it making fun of all these people or is it doing both things at once, which is a very hard thing to do. I have, by the way, a similar se- – I think that question also would apply to the three billboard- billboards outside Ebbing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the films bear some relation to each other. I think people are going to – I tend to like – in this regard, my categories kept, kept separate – and although I did laugh at, at some things, I also at at sometimes felt the film was coming perilously close to sort of committing the problem that, in part, it's inveighing against, and um, in in uh, it, it, it partly is about uh, the, what happens when you become an object of mockery. But there's also a kind of mockery, productively even, <laughs> that attaches to that exists within the film itself. So I I liked. Sometimes you can't necessarily justify or explain <laughs> fully mm. why, why you think something works. I, I kind of did think it worked, but the more I can talk myself out of it. But it
3: could have gone so wrong. This movie just could have gone I, – I think that that's what I admired about it. Like it didn't become just kind of this comedy and mockery. It does have that, like, like I said, there's that mockumentary. And it's element not to it.
1: Christopher Guest. Right, it's like, not there. Like that scene that we listened to could not be in Christopher Guest. It's way too intense.
3: Yeah. Although, did you see For Your Consideration? Uh, that gets very dark. Uh, that Christopher Guest movie about making I, th- I think
2: that move that particular movie has an actual contempt for some of the characters mm. that it has yeah. created uh, in a way that really bothered me, and that I, we're sort of hinting at a, a, a little bit here. I mean, one of my problems with this movie, Parker, was I, I do feel like it, it, it almost kind of violates the premise of its title in the sense that I think it's a lot more interested in Jeff Gallulli, uh and uh, LaVonna Golden, uh, the mother, uh, and the role of the press and some of the other subsidiary characters. I feel the person that I get to know the least in some ways is Tanya Harding. I, or at least I, I walk out of the movie not really understanding her better. And if anybody is flattened into cardboard in this movie, I feel like it's her. But I, I don't know. That could be just me. What was your take on that?
0: It was interesting that you brought that up because I never thought of it that way before because a movie does revolve around her. But I see it from your point of view. In a way, it's everything is happening to her. Uh, and some of the things act as a foil to her character. But really, she's, she's sort of moving through it. But it seemed the tone of the movie and the way that they they chose to break the fourth wall certain elements when they interjected mm-hmm. humor. You know, that sort of tongue in cheek sort of tone. I feel like it was trying to be as ambivalent as possible, which is why it's such a frustrating movie to watch in a way. It, the movie does partially kind of portray her as basically a punchline, as you said, or the object to which things happen. And that's the way the movie treats her, too, just like, you know, her life would reflect that as well.
2: I, here's what... Here's what uh, uh, Carolyn, let me try this out and tell me what you think. I was really, really happy at the end. I'm not always happy when they do things like this, but I was very happy at the end where one of the things they showed you was actual footage of the real Tanya Harding skating in her absolute prime, uh, pulling off this maneuver that nobody else had pulled off. And you really saw her, you know, just how great she really was despite everything that she had going against her. Um, and, and I feel like the movie... The movie it kind of almost skips over that for me. The movie portrays her as a person who's a really good skater but mainly who's really angry all the time uh, about the way that her skating goes unrecognized or the superficial elements having to do with how she presents herself and the music she chooses and the outfits she wears and the fact she doesn't have enough money uh, to, to look as good as some of the other skaters. Uh, and it almost skips over like how good she really is other than her constantly saying how good she really is. I, but I don't know. that Once in that, that could be my own – personal reaction to it.
3: I mean, so I I was I was young, I was a kid when when this happened, but I was into figure skating. I remember liking to watch it. And if you had asked me before this movie, where I saw this and then kind of, you know, you fall down the rabbit hole, you go home and you're Googling and you're watching old videos. If you had asked me to talk about Tanya Harding before this and said, like, you know, name three things about her, I would have been like crispy, bleached yellow bangs, tacky costumes, like and hit Nancy Kerrigan in the knee. That's what I would have said. So and I so I do think that this movie kind of shows how that is that would have been a very common perception of her I don't think like that would have been an off base and that is too bad because then when you go back and watch her skate and you know like that she was one of 10 women to do a triple axel and when they show that in this movie I think like the movie to me I I felt it made me feel awful for how I thought about her all this time. And I, I did see I saw her as not like a punchline, but like a punching bag throughout well, this. And
1: lit- and she literally becomes and literally a punching bag. She the is closing just for everyone. Of the film are about her. In, engaging in these boxing spectacles because she has to make money. But like so her she's whole life, using her her last <laughs> yeah. little bit of notoriety to do that. But I think, but she also your question, she has been physically punched all of her life. And first by her, punched also, and by her mother, and also so it's mm-hmm. like a, pri- a, a professionalizing of the abuse that she's suffered. But I do think that it, it was very it was very canny of the filmmakers to do this. At, at the end, you have this um, juxtaposition. Of scenes of her uh, uh, getting hit in the boxing match, you see her feet in the in the in the boxing shoes, and then we also see her doing in slow motion this triple axle, w- th- which was the great jump and uh, that she that she made her name with, and it's done in slow motion and it's very very beautiful. And um, by the way, I wondered how did they do this with the act? I mean, with, with 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 the actress, they made it look so real. Oh, there's actually uh, she obviously a great article where they things. talk
3: about the visual the yeah. visual effects right. that they use. But used. They, they
1: really do convey the beauty. Of of her skating, um, and and all all films about sports, they have to decide how much time are we going to devote to actually showing the sport. Tend to like the films often where they d- d- don't show that much, but they show a lot here, mm-hmm. and it's done very well, and it and it conveys beauty. I thought that was one of the good things about it. But you know, with the Allison Janney portrayal, what's what's emblematic of this film is that she's both portraying a very a very harrowing uh, you know mother figure, but also a parody of a harrowing mother figure. And this film double tracks in that it gives you both the reality of something and and a sort of parody of it at the same time. That's very hard to do.
2: Yeah. Right. The movie that it reminds me the most of, I think I said this in an email, is the movie to die for, which is also based on a real case. This is the movie where Nicole Kidman uh, plays a scheming weather, TV weather woman who induces uh, a hapless uh, suitor. Uh, played by Joaquin Phoenix to kill uh, her husband, uh, played by Matt Dillon, and there's a lot of talking to the camera, and there's a lot of stuff about class and rising up through class and stuff like that, uh, and there's a lot of what you're describing too, which is this is a pretty serious story, which is doubled back on for the purposes of, of parody at times too, which I don't know. I mean, I can I can enjoy that movie. Actually, Parker you used the word frustrating. W- what did you mean by frustrating?
0: Frustrating tonally, mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, there were times when it had that very uh, tongue-in-cheek Wes Anderson kind of feel to it. You know, even some of the photography and the the way that the shots were done reflected that. So you you get in this mindset that you're expecting some sort of very ironic uh, take on something. But then at times the script is very very bleak, like the clip that we listened to before. That that really is more like a spotlight kind of feel and sometimes when they butted up against each other it it felt like they they just didn't fit right or you it made you feel very conflicted but not in a way that was profound just sort of like hmm this doesn't feel quite right
1: Hmm. There's an earlier film of the – Craig Gillespie, the director, also directed a film called Lars and the Real Girl. Mm-hmm. Did you guys see that? With, I like uh, that movie. With Ryan Gosling. Yeah. And, there's a, and he plays a socially withdrawn, inept, maybe spectrum-y uh, person who develops a relationship, a full-blown romantic relationship with a life-size anatomically correct doll. <laughs> now, there's nothing you know more inherently mockable than that. And part of the film is the extent to which he is, he is mocked by everyone around him. But the film finds this magic way through taking this inherently ridiculous theme but, but also plumbing it for serious sympathy. So that's clearly one thing this, this director does. He's trying to, to balance the parodic and the, and, and the sympathetic and that's an interesting task. How do people think about feel about? We're gonna to have to wrap this up pretty
2: fast. But how about Margot Robbie herself? I I I'll just lay my cards on the table. I think she's too. I, I think one of the reasons she was picked was because she was athletic enough to start those skating sequences, even if they were gonna CGI mm-hmm. and some other stuff and everything. But she could like do the. She could be on camera for some of the beginnings of it. But she's kind of iconically beautiful, and it seems to me that part of Tanya Harding's struggle is that. Nancy Kerrigan was more iconically beautiful than Tanya could ever be.
3: Yeah, I thought she did a I thought she did a solid job. I would kind of agree with you, Colin, that there was something I, I think if you I think if you would cast another actress in this role, it could have it wouldn't have hurt the film. It could have only added to it. But I do think that she did an amazing job in that she did learn to skate for this movie. She was, you know, she's athletic, but she didn't know how to skate. Um, And I think that it was impressive that she did that. And I think that she did bring, I think she was at her best playing the older Tanya Harding in the the narrator role where she's doing that kind of like to the camera interview. I thought that was strong. That was some, I, I really enjoyed her in those moments.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, well we should probably stop here so we'll have time to make some recommendations and some endorsements Uh, the movie is I, Tonya you should definitely go see it if you are interested in uh, the Oscars and who's going to get them and you should probably go see it anyway it has its frustrating qualities I would agree with Parker but overall I think there's a lot to get out of it of course there's also a Sufjan Stevens uh, song about Tanya Harding of course there is
0: but it takes one to know one and God only knows what you This whole conversation is making me feel bad about the time I hit Carl Castle with a cricket bat. I was just trying to get ahead. Today's show was produced by Bruno McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Most of Amanda Fish's 2 million Twitter followers are plankton. The part of Bill Curry was played by Scott Hamilton. On Monday, the scramble leaves the pocket and looks at Super Bowl commercials. And now, back to Colin.
2: You know, one thing I I forgot to to point out in the preceding segment is that, I mean, Tanya Harding, maybe just because this story became kind of ripe in a certain way, there's been an awful lot of revisiting uh, of this story of late. Uh, There was a a play called Tea uh, at the uh, American Theater Company. Uh, There's been an opera. Uh, there is a uh, documentary, the part of the 30 for 30 series on ESPN called The Price of Gold. Uh, yes, there's Ta- Tanya and Nancy, the rock opera. Tanya Harding, the musical, that's sort of a flat out comedy uh, uh, written in connection with the Upright Citizens Brigade and, and on and on and on. So there's some way in which that – and I would also lump in Nicole Muley's uh, opera about uh, Amy Fisher, who I think is sort of the other tanya like uh, character from, from that era. There's some way in which we're – Coming back to this kind of material and kind of repalpating it. All right, it's time to uh, recommend some things. Uh, So, Rand, why don't you go first?
1: So, I'm going to uh, recommend two books. One that just came to mind when we were talking about cultural appropriation, and I may have endorsed this book one time a couple of years ago, but it's the kind of book that can use repeated endorsement. It's a mid 70s novel called Oreo by a forgotten, uh, now forgotten writer named Fran Ross, an African American writer who died of cancer shortly after writing that book. Uh, And it was reissued. A few years ago, um, and it's, it sort of represents the triumph of cultural appropriation in that it, it combines black exploitation narratives with Jewish humor, absurdism. It's also a kind of classic Bildungsroman in, in a way. There are these Joycean-like linguistic puns everywhere, um, and it, so it sort of owes about equal, in equal parts as much to Shaft as it does to James Joyce, and, and it's a kind of novel. You really, what can you say about? It's, uh, it's cultural appropriation except stand aside and, and marvel. So it's called Oreo by Fran Ross. The other book, um, on, a, on a much more uh, somber note, I guess, I've spent some time recently interviewing a woman who lives in Bloomfield named Karin Stahl, S-T-A-H-L. She wrote a book called The Option. Uh, her daughter 15 years ago in young adulthood took her own life. And she had an anxiety disorder that was insufficiently reckoned with and and treated. And the book is about the aftermath of both the immediate and longer term of of losing your only child in this way uh, and how uh, her her mother, Karin Stahl, um, went back. Her daughter was a would-be writer and she had many, many books and notebooks. And her mother, the book is partly a search through her daughter's writings to, to try under, to understand posthumously, to understand her better. But it's also about reconstituting your own life. Karin Stahl has gotten very much involved in in, in groups, um, support groups of people who've had who've faced this problem. It's a beautifully written book, book. It's heart it's heartbreaking, but it's also very helpful and in its in its own way spiritually um, inspired. Uh, mm. It's called The Option by Karin Stahl. Mm-hmm. Parker, who? What would you like to recommend?
0: This is not particularly new, but there's an article that was on uh, BBC Future from a while back. Um, it's called "Objects Designed to Be as Uncomfortable as Possible," which I like to refer to as syphilis for designers. It's a. Uh, it talks. It takes the Greek designer Katerina Comprari, I hope that I'm pronouncing that correctly. She designed a set of objects that, uh, basically, everyday objects, but turned into things that are completely impractical and and just basically bend your mind. For example, there's a a watering pot with the spout turned inwards over the top. Just mm-hmm. crazy things like that, but I, I like it very much because it, it's a great daily reminder of how everyday objects really have a ton of thinking behind them, but we we tend not to think about it too much. It
2: kind of goes with the Donald Norman book, right? Uh, didn't he re- there's even the yes, thing called the yes, the, the Norman uh, door, which is the door. You can't figure out how the door works. The door, you push the door, you're supposed to pull the door. Right, stuff right.
0: Like that, yeah. The famous book, um, Design of Everyday Things. There you That's go.
2: That's right. Um, all right. And Carolyn Payne, uh, what are you going to recommend?
0: All right. I have two endorsements.
3: One, I, I like can't actually say the title on air. I've endorsed this before. It rhymes with Pitt's. Uh, Creek. Mm-hmm. It's on Pop Network. Uh, Eugene Levy and his son co-wrote and co-created this show. Catherine O'Hara is in it. It is so brilliant. You can watch the previous seasons on Netflix, um, and uh, it is it is just a great piece. It's it's like a great indoor if you're, you know, a winter shut-in like I am forced to be right now. Um, it's just something great. And also, if you are venturing out, uh, Roundabout Theater in New York has a play right now, Amy and the Orphans, and it is a, um, a new play, and I happen to know one of the actors in it. Um, it is a play that deals with um, disabilities, and the, there are two main actors that alternate, and they both have Down syndrome. And uh, Eddie Barbanel is uh, my mom's best friend's son. And he is an actor, a professional actor with Down syndrome. And it is a really well done. I've seen it in previews. Um, And it is a really amazing piece of theater. So definitely check that out if you are in the city.
2: All right. First of all, I want to thank everybody who's on the nose today. That's Rand Richards-Cooper, contributing editor at Commonweal, writes the In Our Midst column for Hartford Magazine. Parker Who, graphic designer who performs in a bunch of local bands making her nose debut today. And a triumphant debut, it was her new solo album, Late Reply, is available at parkerwho.bandcamp.com. Carolyn Payne is an injured actress, injured comedian, and injured dancer, (laughs) but she's recovering. She's going to come back and and take over the world. Uh, I'll make a few endorsements. First of all, I want to endorse... um, the actress uh, Julianne Nicholson. Who I just have this intense fondness for, in everything in, in uh, *I Tanya*. She plays Diane Rawlinson, who is uh, the skating coach of Tanya Hard- Harding, and the person who's trying to bridge the gap between Tanya's kind of heavy metal and Richard Marx-loving, tacky music, tacky outfits thing, and the more rarefied world of skating. Most of which, by the way, is inhabited by skaters who come from very modest backgrounds but are able to acquire the trappings anyway uh, of uh, of higher class. Uh, so. Anyway, Julianne Nicholson, and she's like really great at anything you ever see. Once you get used to her, you'll know to look for her. Uh, I was also thinking about a skating thing that goes along with this. Right around the time, exactly at the time of Tanya Harding, there was another skater. She was French and she was black. Her name was Surya Bonali. Uh, And at the time, I was just completely knocked out by her. Uh, And she, in addition to doing some of these things that Tanya Harding could do, could do something that's actually illegal in skating, which is a flip. Uh, She would, on skates, flip up in the air, row, Rotate around and land on her skates, uh, and. Uh, It's incredibly dangerous uh, to do. And she would sometimes do it in exhibitions and every once in a while she would do it as kind of an up yours to judges who she – like Tanya Harding, she felt that she was not understood, that she was being judged by the wrong set of standards, that she could always do the technical stuff and then would get artistic points taken off and stuff like that. So um, Radio Lab did a really great piece on this. Uh, So It's easy to track down on the Radio Lab site, uh, the story of Surya Bonali. Um, I've been thinking a little bit about Philadelphia because of the Super Bowl tomorrow. Uh, I would recommend if you if you don't really sort of if you haven't got a good grasp on sort of Philadelphia Eagles weirdness of their fans. Um, I w- you can certainly watch the movie Silver Linings Playbook, which kind of gets at this. I mean Robert De Niro in particular plays that kind of Eagles fan that you don't want to be anywhere near uh, during a game. The Philadelphia Eagles, the only f- sports franchise to have, at one point have an actual court, like a real court with a judge and a jail underneath the stands because so many of their fans engaged in criminal, criminal behavior that had to be addressed in a very prompt and expeditious manner. And, and then if you really want to go to town on Philadelphia depravity, And Caroline, I bet you know this one. There's a very famous clip of the comedian Bill Burr who uh, who was on a lineup of comedians who were all getting booed in Philadelphia. One after another, booed off the stage. Almost nobody could finish their set. And Burr got out there with a plan that he was going to finish his set, but he wasn't going to do his, his actual comedy set. He was going to spend the entire time berating the Philadelphia audience in the most visceral, politically incorrect, rude, scatological, profane and angry terms. And he did that. He stays out there for the entire 12 minutes, the entire time he's reminding the crowd how much longer he's going to be out there and that he's not leaving. And I mean, it's not for the faint of heart and it's really politically incorrect. But um, in terms of one man taking on an entire city, it's maybe worth listening to. Thanks very much to Parker and Rand and Carolyn, and we'll be back on Monday with a scramble.